0: To learn more about CODE, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E-Health.com, or email CODE directly at Partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Investing in the care of women, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. 2023 and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. On today's episode, we're discussing how the care of women can contribute to the cost-effectiveness of health. I'll be sharing an interview with Dr. Margaret Larkins-Pettigrew of Allegheny Health Network and Highmark Health. But first, we've got the first news segment of the year with HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack.
1: Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. To kick off 2023, we want to take a look at some of the key things to watch for in healthcare policy over the coming year. Full disclosure, we're recording this the week before Christmas, and there's a bill pending in Congress that would address a few things, including a scheduled 4% across the board reduction in reimbursement and would at least soften a 4.5% scheduled reduction in physician payments. So there's reason to be cautiously optimistic that those things will be taken care of at least to some degree, we have to watch and make sure that Congress actually passes this bill. But I think there's cause to be reasonably hopeful that they will. Uh, But Sean, even so, the reimbursement picture for hospitals is gonna be challenging, to say the least, in 2023. What are some of the specific concerns you have, uh, including with respect to outlier payments?
2: We're still seeing historic increases in IPPS and OPPS. IPPS coming in at a 4.1%, market basket increase the highest in 25 years, and then OPPS coming in at 3.8%, not much lower for calendar year 2023. But stacked up against inflation, which is hovering around 8%, and then of course, enormous bills for labor and wages that hospitals have been facing this last year, those increases don't make much of an impact. But what I've been following and asking our hospital members to really take a hard look at and start modeling are the outlier thresholds for MSGRG rates on the inpatient side, which are coming in at I think it was $38,859, an increase over $30,998 from this year. So a significant increase there on meeting that outlier threshold needs to be reached. And with the you know sunset or the at least the a little bit of a, a wind down for COVID and not seeing as many cases there we could see some hospitals really hurting from that outlier threshold increase for inpatient and outpatient next year. So I think outpatient, the outlier threshold came in at $8,625 for calendar year 23, where it was only $6,175 for 22. So those are some of the big impacts reimbursement wise that came out in the rules. And then as you said, the physician rule, we think some of that is going to be hopefully mitigated a little bit through this latest budget bill that um, Congress is working on. So we're hoping that that, you know, four plus percent reduction on the physician side is going to be mitigated a little bit there. It's 4.48 decrease in in the conversion factor for the PFS rate.
1: Indeed. So those are very important things to flag. What else are you looking at for this next year? Telehealth reimbursement, I know, is on the minds of a lot of people. Uh, This new legislation that's uh, omnibus spending bill would extend telehealth waivers for two years, whereas uh, as of now, they've been scheduled to expire five months after the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency, whenever that is. So what's important about that, do you think?
2: Well, there's a lot going on there with telehealth. You know, there's there's parity that's that's being matched between the telehealth visit and an in-person visit. That could really um, be to the detriment of hospitals standing up telehealth programs. So if that does get pushed out, if those waivers do get extended out another two years, that would be truly good news for providers um, to mitigate some of those costs of standing up those um, more robust telehealth programs, as well as, you know, we still have a lot of members, a lot of hospitals looking at the hospital at home programs that were included in those waivers during the pandemic years and time frame, And that would be a welcome advance if they extended th- those waivers another two years, which I know they're considering now, right, Nick?
1: They are. Yeah, that language is in this legislation. So absolutely, I think a lot of people in the industry would be pleased to see those waivers pushed out another two years. This legislation also has repercussions for Medicaid enrollment. It gives states some clarity on phasing out the continuous enrollment mandate that has been in place during the pandemic, they can start unwinding, is the term people have been using, the additional enrollees as early as April 3rd. Conservative estimates put the net loss in enrollment at more than 5 million over a year long unwinding period. So this all has the potential to create significant headaches for the entire healthcare system. Sean, what are you going to be watching for in this area?
2: One of the things we're prepping our members in our hospitals for right now and and truly patients as well because keep in mind it's not just hospitals and healthcare providers that are you know experiencing these huge increases in inflation i mean you know every time a person goes to the grocery store they're reminded of of how much inflation has gone up i mean i know i've seen it but as these folks turn off of medicaid as states do those redeterminations that they haven't done you know in almost three years in some circumstances many of those patients will qualify for bronze plans on the exchange especially with given the subsidies that biden passed to offer subsidies to those exchange plans for next year so you're looking at patients having an out-of-pocket minimum of somewhere between seven and eight thousand dollars depending on where those out of pocket maximums and minimums come in for 2023 so at that point you're looking at a self-pay patient for most for most services unless it's catastrophic or or some kind of an emergency service so hospitals are going to be charged with more you know doing more screening for charity care financial assistance payment arrangements collection activity And of course, that's not gonna go on deaf ears. So reminding Congress of what's to come as those Medicaid programs unwind through now this new proposed landscape is gonna have some impact on not only providers, but also patients across the US.
1: Absolutely. So thank you for the perspective on that. In this segment, we've given you all, I think, just a taste of why these are interesting, but certainly challenging times for the healthcare industry. We'll definitely be bringing you the latest developments on these stories and many others throughout the year. So, Sean, thanks for the expertise. Uh, Happy New Year again to you and to everybody listening.
2: Thank you, Nick. Happy New Year.
0: When I was a kid, there was a series of cough syrup commercials that featured a sick family coming to the matriarch for help. The tagline was recommended by Dr. Mom. It's been decades since that ad aired, but there's a reason it's so memorable. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, women make 80 percent of the healthcare decisions in the United States. A few publications citing that statistic are now calling Dr. Mom the chief medical officer of the family. The interview I'm sharing today is about how to reach and influence those so-called CMOs. My guest is Dr. Margaret Larkins-Pettigrew, Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer of Allegheny Health Network and Highmark Health. She's also passionate about maternal and fetal health and is a professor of OBGYN. She says that taking better care of the women in our society can contribute to better health for everyone you specialize in women's health you speak on women's empowerment through wellness and women as it happens and we've talked about this on the podcast before but women account for 80% of healthcare purchasing decisions they're kind of the ones who take their kids to the doctor they're the ones who push their spouses to go to the doctor i mean at least in my house that's how it is so it it seems to me that taking care of the women is good for everybody, right? But how can we take better care of women, both in a healthcare sense and in a societal sense? I realize that's probably a question we could spend days on. But um,
3: but briefly, well, absolutely. So women are health, basically, and we cannot do what we do and do it well unless we really begin to invest in the care of women. You know, I always start with the fact that, you know, women are the core of the home, right? And what women do, and now we have um, birthing people, really produce children, healthy children, that then begin to grow up and be part of our, our ecosystem, our economic system. And so women are health. I mean, we need to know that women, if we keep women healthy, we keep our societies healthy. And so it starts in our healthcare systems and how we treat women, then it spills over into our communities. And of course, you know, both of those together mean that we're going to have a healthy society. So it's the investment, the intentional investment in understanding and taking care of women. How can we take better care of our women? By having women at the table. First of all, you know, the leadership space uh, for all women in in any system, whether it's healthcare, business, whether it's in in government, there's not enough women at the table who understand the, the lifespan of women. So we're not just talking about uh, women in their menopausal state, we're talking about from minarchy when we, we begin to go into, into womanhood, to menopause and beyond. And understanding that every last one of those cycles in our lives changes us in some way to the better. And that as long as we're taken care of and we're taking care of ourselves, we can be the top of our tier as it relates to being productive and contributing. I don't think that people who are in charge currently take that very seriously and make sure that they understand that investing in women's health is the key to making sure that we are productive as a society, but productive as our medical institutions as well. Because when you look at the data that's been with us for many, many years and why there is such a high rate of maternal and infant mortality based on preventable causes, and what that savings would be if we took the time to understand women, both in in all of those aspects we would understand that this is a big area that we need to focus on in order for us to continue to be financially stable, but we haven't invested in it.
0: Something that we we've been talking a lot about at HFMA is cost effectiveness of health, not health care, but health and keeping people healthy in cost effective ways. And it feels like taking care of women in this way that you're talking about, it, it really fits in with that cost effectiveness of health idea.
3: First of all, you know, women take a lot on their plates, right? You know, we're always trying to do everything, not only, you know, have children, raise children, and be part of the workforce as well. Uh, But that also means that we have to take care of ourselves in order to take care of everyone else that comes into our lives, whether we're with children or without children. It really means that we have to take care of ourselves to be the best selves. And so that should start, you know, very, very young. You know, I think about the Cinderella complex that we all have. You know, we are born we're cultivated to be these beautiful women who, you know, grow up and get married. And, and we have this light and shining armor comes along and, and carries us off and takes care of us. And we have this white picket fence. Well, that Cinderella dream, although it might be a piece of it, it is not all of it. And even in order to get there, to understand that we should have many, many outlets in our lives that increase our mental wellness and all of the wellnesses that I talk about all the time, We have to invest in all of them. And I'll just run through them really quickly with what I talk about all the time, because I think understanding wellness and not thinking about illness is where we need to always concentrate on, right? So we think about, about wellness, physical wellness, and what that means in every single decade of our lives, in every single journey that we go through in our lives. Understanding that our physical wellness is so important, and that incorporates everything from You're looking at our bodies, examining our breasts, going to our wellness visits to uh, understand that something's going wrong, something's wrong with our bodies that we presented for the right care, but eating well and and drinking well and doing all those things to make sure that our physical wellness is taken care of. But then we have to think about our mental wellness, right? Because it all ties together. Every single piece of the wellness as it relates to women all ties together. And so we talk about mental wellness. What's happening with our mental health? I mean, women, if we think of just, just the postpartum period, postpartum period for women is very, very stressful. Increase in depression, increase in suicides, you know, lack of surrounding a wholesome care, right? In that space alone, think about it. If we could give women the entire care of a village that is present, understanding what they're going through as their hormones are changing again, hopefully get them back to their cells again, right? Just that phase of it will save women the mental anxiety that comes with just postpartum, not to mention all of the other things that we go through, menopausal changes. So mental illness is great. Another part of it, mental wellness, but we have to think about emotional wellness as well, right? And so we are emotional beings and that's okay. But how we respond in an emotional way that does not increase our hormones, that really make us not as healthy because we have this, our our wider catecholamines and all those things we talk about as physicians is important. And that comes from being emotional human beings. Then we go into all of spiritual wellness, financial wellness, sexual wellness, which I talk about a lot, but a big one is social wellness. Who is around us that is allowing us to be our best selves, to empowering us, Making sure that the 70,000 hours that all of us put into a work life really is something that we want to do. We want to come to work. We want to be the best we can be. And we want to come with our authentic self and enjoy what we're doing. So the whole issue of wellness for women and empowering women in the healthcare space and beyond makes a significant difference for who we are and how productive we are in our, our society.
0: That's quite a lot to think about. How can we educate and empower patients to make decisions that improve their health and wellness and how much of that responsibility should be on the patient versus a provider or others in the industry?
3: The whole issue of how we really become partners, partners with our members, if you're a payer, partner with our patients, if you're a clinician and partner with our communities, it's all about partnership. And in any partnership, it's important that both of the partners understand one another, right? Before you go into any agreement, before you sign any contracts, it really is about understanding what's being offered and what you need to actually put into the partnership. And I think we miss the mark a lot when we don't invest in that. You know, patients need to understand what we're saying to them. Just think about basically the literacy. When I talk about literacy, I talk about patient literacy. I talk about payer literacy, I talk about the clinician literacy. How are we communicating with one another so that we're partners? You know, It's all about education, but education at what level so patients understand what is expected of them and the clinicians understand what is expected of them as well as they enter this partnership of of health and healthcare. And so that is where it has to start. It has to start with, if I am the payer, I need to understand what my audience is, who my members are, what my members want, right? And then I need to make sure that they can get access and access all of the products that they need to in order to make their lives better. And so it's all about understanding all of that piece, okay? And then that's the payer side of it and and endorsing members to say, if you come into my plan, then here's all the things I'm gonna offer you and what else can I offer you? that will help you get up in the morning, take care of your children, get to work on time, do all the things you need to do to bring joy into your life. But then at the clinician space, right? So what about the clinicians? You are in the you are really selecting physicians, clinicians, folks who you want to make sure that they are enhancing your life as, as far as the wellness space. They have to have a literacy, understanding what your literacy is and being able to communicate with you in a way that your partners that you're signing a contract together, that if I need to understand that you don't understand, right? And so that when you walk out of my office, it shouldn't be about whether you're gonna be compliant, that word, whether you're gonna be coming back for your visits. It should be about, let's talk about that. Let's have this two-way, this reciprocal relationship so that we are in partnership together, right? Because that spills over to the entire community. And so when we talk about healthcare and, and who's giving the healthcare, it has to incorporate all those complex legs that we don't spend enough time thinking about.
0: I've noticed, depending on who you talk to, sometimes, sometimes there seems to be this idea that if, if I am unhealthy, it is my fault and that there is something that I didn't do that I should have done. And there, there is a, a patient's responsibility to care for themselves, right? Right, right. We know it's bad for us to smoke. We shouldn't smoke,
3: but. Yeah. But there's this blame game. Yeah, th- it seems to be. It seems to be. Yeah. There's this blame game, which really will turn patients away from you, especially as a health care system. And this example that this very prominent author gave, and she said that she went in and she was in preterm labor, you know, wealthy, did all her everything she had to do. And so they're asking her about her health. They're asking her, you know, do you smoke? So, so right off the bat, it's like you must have done something to cause you to get to the space. Right. So. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you use any drugs? You sure you don't use any drugs? You sure you don't you know you're not doing this? And so and she's sitting there thinking, I have not done any of this stuff. I have gone to my visits, I've taken care of myself. But in her mind, she's thinking, why are you trying to find a reason for this to happen when I don't know why it's happening? So help me understand why this happening because I've been doing all the things you want me to do, right? And so that's one case. And another situation is you know, a patient comes in and she's she's having lots of bleeding, all right? And so she needs a hysterectomy, But she has a drug problem and she's addicted to heroin. And so the anesthesiologist says, well, we can't do the surgery because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with your anesthesia, you're under anesthesia, you know, go away, kick the habit, then come back. Wow. Like, can you imagine, can you imagine that, you know, I have a medical problem because one of those medical problems that I'm I'm addicted, right? I'm, I'm addicted, but I have this other problem that's going to kill me first, probably, right? But you as a provider saying to me, this is your fault. So I'm not, I'm not going to take the risk because this is your fault. And you need to take care of that problem before I help you take care of this problem. And it should never be that. It should be this wholesome, comprehensive wraparound care that we give to all of our patients that make them wanna be part of us. When they walk in, they're gonna say, this is who I see, this is why I'm having such a great visit, this is why I know that I'm I'm gonna trust my provider to give me what I need. I'm gonna trust the entire system because the entire system cares about me. We have to look at every part of our case management of all of our patients that come into our systems, right? We have to think about health and what that means in a preventive space, and how do we keep our patients healthy so that on the other end of it, they're not using our emergency rooms as their physician or their um, their medical home? And then if they are, how do we fix that? You know, how do we make sure that there is someone in, in that space that says, let me get you connected so that we can take care of your chronic illness in a better way, right? So that we're not spending those emergency room dollars over and over and that we're, we're really checking these boxes as they go along to say, how do we give more effective, more affordable, but quality care that really deals with the holistic patient? And when it comes to women, we fail an awful lot.
0: Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. My pleasure. Take care of yourself. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If HFMA certification is among your goals for 2023, congratulations because there's never been a better time. New study tools are available to help you earn a certification and there's more to come. So sign up for that course today. Find the right program for you at hfma.org.
3: So...